0: The masters almost surely have a plan. This clearly may be something near beyond the realm of man. And until you thoroughly
1: tested every last close just view, I find the more you think you know, the less you really do. That's true, Doctor Sayers. Very well. Where would we be without you?
0: Parasite Chatters, I hope you have those seat belts securely fastened, your tray tables locked, and your seat backs in the full upright position, because today we're going on yet another one of those very wild rides we've come to love oh so much. Because when it comes to high strangeness encounters with spirits, aliens, fairies, black-eyed children, men in black, cryptid creatures, and the other slices of the paranormal pie, many researchers have just been focusing on the big picture— They try to take everything in and come up with grand unifying theories, and if you ask me, there will always be odd experiences that don't fit whatever box you try to put them in. That just seems to be the slippery, tricky nature of these things. But researchers like today's returning guest Joshua Cutchen have instead honed in on cases that contain very specific threads and found that sometimes the smallest details can contain the biggest clues. His last book, of course, was called A Trojan Feast, focusing on the presence of food and edible exchanges in these encounters, and he's followed it up now with a new book called The Brimstone Deceit, an in-depth examination of supernatural scents, otherworldly odors, and monstrous miasmas, which clearly covers the sense of smell in these cases, and who doesn't like a party with a theme, so let's get this one started, Josh man, welcome back to The Higher Side.
1: It is a great pleasure to be here, home of the best damn intros on the internet. (laughs) You always do such a good job with us. Ah, well,
0: thanks, man. I do try, but I appreciate what you do so much more. Loved having you on last time. Really enjoyed this book as well, and I actually came away learning quite a bit of practical information about the sense of smell, even among all the weirdness. And I really started to think about just how much we take smell for granted when it's really quite important and somewhat mysterious So to get us warmed up here, tell us a bit about smell itself, the mechanics of it, and maybe why you took this smell-based approach to weirdness.
1: I'd be happy to. You know, it's one of those things, as I was doing research for this, I became more and more fascinated just by the history and the sociology and the psychology and all the different aspects of of olfaction, as it were. And, you know, it's, it's one of those things that I had noticed a long time ago is that there are certain common elements in a lot of paranormal, supernatural phenomena, where there tend to be similar odors that are noticed. And it's one of those things where people would, you know, make a note of it in a book or something, maybe maybe dedicate a chapter to it here or there, but no one ever really took the time to roll up their sleeves and get in there and try to write a long-form book on the subject. So I, I felt like in order to really do justice to that particular topic, I had to take a deep dive into, you know, exactly what we know about science as it stands, you know, today. Mm-hmm. And it's surprising to me how little we know. It's one of those things that's sort of like sleep. Like, we understand why we need to sleep and we understand that we need it, but we don't understand exactly why it happens. And similarly, like, we understand a lot of stuff about scent, but we don't still understand exactly how it happens. There are several theories that are out there as far as the actual mechanism goes. But what is apparent in each of the different disciplines that I looked into is that scent is intimately tied to memory, so much so that for example, Alzheimer's patients, one of the first things that they'll notice is a diminished capacity to smell. And it's not only tied to memory, but it's also tied to involuntary memory. So not necessarily the ability to always remember, but the inability to forget, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. So if you ever encounter an odor that made an impression on you earlier in life, and most odors do in some form or fashion, certain memories and certain emotions even associated with that odor will immediately be triggered. Sint is one of the first senses that actually, one of the first senses that comes online in newborn babies. Hmm. And it's, it's intimately tied to our limbic system. So it's like this knee-jerk reaction. And, you know, when you're interested in these sort of topics of, you know, manipulation and of deception, um, it seems like it would definitely be a nice back door for some sort of intelligence or even, you know, on a more mundane level for, you know, earthbound organizations to sort of use this as a, as a source of manipulation.
0: Yeah, that was going to be one of my first questions for you, because the title of the book, The Brimstone Deceit, I mean, deceit implies some kind of trickery. And I've heard you say in other interviews as well that it's a sense that's ripe for deception. I guess, do you think that's a primary way that smell is used in a lot of these strange encounters?
1: I would argue that it is, you know, uh, just so everybody knows. I I try to make it a point to say this every time I talk about the book. The Brimstone Deceit sounds like some sort of conservative Christian, like, you know, Robert (laughs) Ludlum maybe or some sort (laughs) of of Dan Brown novel. Yeah, that's not what it's about at all. We can get into exactly why it's titled that later. So, yeah, it it does seem – I mean if you look at a lot of paranormal phenomena in general, there is this underlying – tricksterish aspect, which I'm sure anybody who's familiar with it has run across in the past. And the fact that scent can so clearly and pointedly shape our emotions and our perceptions, I think is suggestive that this is possibly something that is being used to deliberately impart, well, is is being used deliberately for manipulation. One of my favorite anecdotes that I came across in the book was this uh, account of a small sort of, wave of terror that went through this small Colorado town of a spirit that was supposedly prowling the streets. And it was interesting because about half the people said that the spirit smelled like flowers and looked like a beautiful woman. And half the people said that it looked like some sort of monstrous elephant and was shooting fire and and the smell of brimstone from its trunk. So I think that, you know, our expectations can be shaped a lot or have the potential to be shaped by the way that things smell. And if there was an intelligence, you know, be it extraterrestrial or spiritual or interdimensional or any of those things, it would make sense that this would be just another arsenal, a tool in the arsenal, rather, in order to manipulate us to their own ends.
0: Yeah, I mean, I fully agree. And... So in this book, you really break things down into three categories. You got spirits, aliens and UFOs, and then cryptids and other animal-like creatures. And of course, we know that plenty of these cases are going to blur the lines a bit, but smell-wise, can you break down some of the commonalities that pop up within these categories?
1: Absolutely. So one of the reasons that the book is called The Brimstone Deceit is because Probably the most common supernatural smell across all those, you know, that spectra of phenomena that you mentioned is the smell of sulfur, sulfur-oriented smells, the smell of brimstone. I would hesitate to call it a majority of smells, but I would definitely say a plurality of paranormal smells fall into that category. Now, looking at that, you sort of have to parse out exactly what that means because, believe it or not, pure sulfur does not smell. Sulfur only usually smells when it's burnt or when it's in certain compounds, but sulfurous smells in general comprise the lion's share of what you run into in these paranormal accounts. Beyond that, you'll find recurring themes of combustion a lot of times, so certain entities and things will smell like smoke. One of the most common ghost smells is the smell of smoke, but interestingly enough, one of the most common smells in abductee, alien abductee encounters is the smell of burning hair. So you again have this combustion motif that sort of uh, rears its head. Floral smells are not uncommon. You find those in hauntings where there's allegedly a female spirit. You'll also find them in some early contactee literature. Um, Then you have animalistic smells that you run into with Sasquatch and stuff. And then you also have this sort of minor motif of ozone occurring every now and then after exorcisms. People claim to notice the smell of ozone, and supposedly ectoplasm manifested in seances smells like ozone. And shouldn't be any surprise to anyone who really follows UFOs that ozone is something of a minor meme in terms of UFO smells. It, it crops up quite frequently. So it's interesting that there's a constellation of odors that tend to rear their heads time and again in these different phenomena, which to me implies that there's perhaps some sort of, if not shared origin of these experiences, these phenomena, perhaps shared methodology between the phenomena.
0: Yeah, yeah, I think that's a great little overview. And something that did sort of surprise me that you've kind of mentioned beyond just the smell of sulfur is that female spirit entities often have a flowery or perfume-like smell, and male spirits tend to smell like smoke, which is interesting. But, um, you know, should we really be assuming gender in 2017,
1: Josh? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> well you know as much as i like to to take the piss out of stuff like that <laughs> you know it's it is interesting because it sort of comes back to this idea of being manipulated this idea of our expectations being formed by getting these sort of odors you know we're noticing these sort of odors in these encounters if you take something like for example smoking it was just as prevalent among both sexes during a lot of the time periods that supposedly a lot of these hauntings come from, you know, the 19th century or whatnot, and similarly, on balance, cologne has been used since antiquity. And yet, whenever people smell smoke in a haunting, they go, "Oh, it's the you know, it's the spirit of a man." <laughs> or they, you know, whenever they smell some sort of pleasant smell, they say, "Oh, it's just, you know, it's the spirit of a woman who you know is is searching for her long lost lover or something like that." So, I I can't help but I mean, may, maybe it is that simple. Maybe it is that cut and dry. But if there is a possibility that something behind the veil would wish to impart some sort of, you know, gender-based assumptions upon a witness, it would make sense to use those things because of the way that we frame them in our culture.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. And even when it's not deception on the part of the entity itself, I mean, smell seems to be kind of an area where people's personal testimonies, I would think, wouldn't be quite as accurate as what they see or feel, wouldn't you say?
1: Yes, it's it's quite difficult. I mean, so people will talk all day about, you know, certain problems with eyewitness testimony, you know, even in something as mundane as a car crash. But, uh, you know, smell is even more rife with some problems. And that's one of the things that was difficult to chip away when writing this book. There is a phenomena that olfactory scientists talk about quite often, which is called the tip of the nose phenomena. It's sort of a play on the term tip of the tongue, where you can't quite think of a word, but you know what the word is. Well, similarly, people will be able to identify an odor more than they can actually put words to what that odor is. Mm -hmm. So you do run into things like people saying, "Oh, it smelled like you know the I saw the UFO depart, and it smelled like lightning." Well, lightning (laughs) doesn't have a smell, but lightning creates ozone. You know, specifically to the to the trends that I noticed in the book, people would often say, it smelled like sulfur, or it smelled like brimstone. Well, again, as we said, you know, brimstone, sulfur doesn't really smell, unless you burn it, and that's actually sulfur dioxide, or unless it's present in decomposition, and that's hydrogen sulfide. So you have to sort of look for other context clues that people tend to include and lump in there. So if someone were to say, it smelled like sulfur, like, like a rotten egg, well, that definitely means hydrogen sulfide, because wherever there's decomposition of organic material in the absence of oxygen, that's hydrogen sulfide. So it's really more about trying to get to the heart of what people mean rather than what they say in a lot of these encounters.
0: Well, decomposition of organic material is such a key phrase. I mean, that's kind of the, the point of examining things from these kind of side angles is trying to get insight into the big picture. I mean, what kind of clues does this sulfuric smell give us into situations um, of paranormal encounters i mean it must mean something the decomposition of organic material seems like a key phrase
1: there yeah i mean it's interesting if you try to find some sort of overarching theme to a lot of these different odors you sort of become stuck on the idea of entropy you know a lot of people describe decaying odors like sasquatch smelling like rotten meat or you know, um, sulfur, again, is one of the compounds that are released when there's organic decomposition. Burning combustion are similarly, you know, entropic phenomena as well. Sulfur, specifically, to that exact odor and that exact problems that it, that it entails, raises quite a few questions. For example, if these phenomena are capable of controlling the way that they smell and they wish to not be noticed, they really couldn't have picked anything worse than sulfur. It's mind-blowing, like... I had to sort of rein myself in because when I was writing this, I kept on finding these interesting things that I could have just written a book on smell about because some of the stuff I found out about just human smell and the way that we interact with olfaction is really fascinating. But to the point of sulfur, we are more sensitive to sulfur compounds than just about any other compound, olfactorily speaking. I mean, that's the reason that household gas smells the way that it does. Household gas is actually odorless. Files which are sulfur compounds are actually added to the gas to provide us a warning because the detection level for these compounds is so extremely low. My favorite example that I like to talk about is hydrogen sulfide, which again is that rotten egg smell. It's probably the most common of this sulfur smell is this this rotten egg sort of odor. And we are sensitive to the uh, our, our detection threshold for hydrogen sulfide is two parts per billion. And to put that in perspective, if I took an ink dropper and dropped it in the back of a, a semi truck carrier filled with water, that drop of ink would be twice the concentration of 2 parts per billion. <laughs> so wow. yeah, it's 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 uh, I'm, I'm I'm sorry, 0.05 parts per billion, not 2 parts per billion. Yeah, it's fascinating. We're fascinatingly sensitive to hydrogen sulfide.
0: That's wild, man. I mean, this kind of built-in susceptibility to the sulfuric smell and its association with spirits is pretty odd. It might be a clue. It's interesting from a developmental perspective, an evolutionary perspective,
1: isn't it? Well, to be fair, hydrogen sulfide, which we can detect, at, you know, that half a part per billion, is a very toxic gas you know theoretically any gas that you get more of than oxygen can be toxic but hydrogen sulfide is something that is actually quite dangerous and has been linked to some some mass extinction events as well but you know you have to also look at the other things that sort of uh sensitivity to sulfur compounds allows human beings to do i mean it allows us to avoid spoiled food which might get us sick it allows us to know when you know an aspect of our particular uh, biome might be contaminated with something like feces or, or a corpse or something. So it's more about preserving hygiene in humans than anything else.
0: Hmm. That's fair. And let's step back to uh, UFOs smelling like ozone. Ozone is a smell. I don't even know if I could identify that smell. But is it different enough from sulfur that it could almost suggest we are dealing with two different categories?
1: Well, there's <laughs> there's a real problematic history between ozone and sulfur. Ozone is one of those smells that I don't think anyone knows until... Uh, th- th- they recognize it, but they don't realize that they recognize it, I think is the best way to put it. Hmm. There's a contentious history between sulfur and ozone specifically. So uh, in, in terms of classical literature, you know, ancient Greek literature, it was thought that the divine would hurl, you know, thunderbolts from the sky. and the resulting smell was that of sulfur. Nowadays, we know that's ozone. But this connection was so close that the terms for the divine and sulfur were actually linked. Theos in, the, in terms of uh, the divine and theon in terms of sulfur, which is where we got that term thyle that I mentioned later. You also see this echoed in Abrahamic thought where a lot of times in the Bible, for example, whenever God seeks to cleanse something, he uses sulfur. He uses, you know, fire and brimstone because sulfur was actually one of the first fumigants. It's an antimicrobial agent. So it was the idea of, you know, God wanting to cleanse away sin. It's kind of interesting that, you know, when Satan was supposedly cast into the lake of fire and brimstone, it had less to do with Satan smelling bad because he's evil, and more of this was, you know, God's attempt to cleanse Satan with the purifying essence of brimstone, of sulfur. So you have this conflation between sulfur and the divine and ozone coming from lightning bolts. And this conflation continued to the fact that even such people as Benjamin Franklin actually sort of conflated the two, talking about, you know, the smell of sulfur after lightning strikes. And, uh, you know, there was even uh, some Victorian literature that used to say that the reason people would, you know, seek the sea air to be healed is because of the ozone in the air. Well, ironically enough, it's actually dimethyl sulfide (laughs) that we associate with the smell of the, the seaside. So sulfur and ozone have been switched around quite a bit over the years. I have a tough time believing nowadays that people would mistake ozone for sulfur. You know, that's why I like to have those additional clues like saying it smelled like sulfur, like a rotten egg, because if anyone has ever been near a lightning strike, it doesn't smell like a rotten egg. Ozone has more of a peppery quality. Hmm. So you'll find a lot of people in the UFO literature who want to say, well, witnesses are just smelling ozone and mistaking it for sulfur. But, you know, I kind of have a problem with that, because if you're if you're wanting to take their testimony on face value as it is, if you walk that logic back far enough, you're going to be saying that they saw, you know, a weather balloon. You're going to be saying that they saw Venus Mm -hmm. because you're going to constantly be casting doubt on them to discern what they are actually experiencing. So I think that it seems more likely to me that perhaps there is two different odors going on, both sulfur and ozone. It's interesting. Hydrogen sulfide and ozone are actually reactive together. Huh. So, it makes sense that perhaps there would be, you know, some sort of interaction. For example, if you take hydrogen sulfide and ozone, they react to form water and sulfur dioxide. So, again, another common smell in UFO sightings is sulfur dioxide. It's that sort of fireworks gunpowder smell that we associate with sulfur. And then you also have a lot of UFOs, you know, sightings near water. So, we have every aspect of this equation hydrogen sulfide, ozone, water, and sulfur dioxide seen in a plethora of UFO encounters.
0: <laughs> yeah, man, you're becoming quite the smell expert. It's pretty awesome, but... Uh, I hated chemistry in high school. That's the ironic thing. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, smell is definitely probably my most finicky sense because I have terrible allergies. But again, that age-old question is if a lot of these things are, like aliens, Bigfoot, and cryptid, are they physical creatures or something multidimensional in nature? And at least in that case, because you talked about, you know, Bigfoot and some of the animal-like cryptids having uh, a terrible musk, does this help in maybe separating flesh and blood cryptids from dimensional stuff?
1: Well, you know, I'm I'm sort of reminded of the way uh previous guest that I admire of yours, Mike Cleland, has sort of structured his research around owls. Mm. So if you talk to someone like Mike, you know, a lot of what he talks about are how owls tend to uh, appear around synchronicities, around UFO events. But at the same time, you like you know sometimes the owls are weird, and sometimes the owls are just owls. And yeah. Mike, you know, it was is definitely admitting that. Well, similarly, I look at something like Bigfoot, which even though a lot of the cryptozoologists out there don't want to admit it, has a lot of weird stuff surrounding him. His eyes glow at night in some cases. You know, you find uh, sets of tracks that disappear in the middle of fields. You see, you you see, people see Bigfoot in conjunction with UFO sightings. So all these things sort of add up to me to suggest that we're seeing something that may not quite be a flesh and blood primate, even though I'm very sympathetic to that. But what's interesting is if you look at the sorts of smells that are encountered in these run-ins with Bigfoot, they tend to roughly line up to being more sulfurous smells. Or more, you know, non-organic sort of smells when a uh, Bigfoot is seen in some sort of high-strange capacity. When Bigfoot is has glowing eyes. When Bigfoot seems impervious to gunfire. That's when you get these odors that aren't like animalistic odors. And when you know Bigfoot seems like a giant monkey running around the woods. That's when you get people saying, "Oh, he smelled like ammonia, or he smelled like urine, he smelled like wet dog, he smelled like skunk, et cetera, et cetera." So perhaps we have some sort of phenomena. That not unlike, you know, Mike Clellan's Owls is using the sort of iconography of a flesh and blood animal for whatever reason to sort of present itself to witnesses on some occasions. That's the way that I like to try to make everybody happy. I don't know if (laughs) I don't know if it will or not. But, you know, that's that's my take. (laughs) Yeah, well, you mentioned
0: earlier entities inducing smells, too. And you do have a story in the book about a woman in England who claims she smells fish just before negative events in her life and that she considers that a warning from the spirits. And that's obviously a nice thing to have, but it also is a bit of an indication that they can induce smells if they so
1: choose. I mean, yes, you do see incongruous smells popping up from time to time. Sometimes there are mundane explanations for it. For example, there are some people who claim to have noticed the smell of peppermint around uh, Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. And as it turns out, peppermint was one of the things that they used to hang outside to sort of prevent the stench of the battlefield reaching the doors. So sometimes you have really easily explainable odors like that, but then you do have stuff like, you know, the smell of fish or like there's tales of, for example, Sasquatch supposedly changing odor mid-encounter, you know, being able to being able to sort of self-select what it smells like. So it does suggest that there's some sort of uh, consciousness-based level at, w- at which these sort of odors are interacting with us. There was another example in the book of a pair of ghost hunters in Michigan who, uh, one of them, they both could smell this particularly pungent body odor smell in the site that they were work- they were working at, which was supposedly haunted. But what's interesting is that one of them was anosmic. They actually couldn't smell. This individual couldn't smell at all, yet somehow this one odor was able to get through to them and was confirmed by their companion. So it's interesting. It seems to me that perhaps we're dealing with something that can sort of bypass a lot of these things and and use this sort of olfactory information at a more intimate level.
0: Hmm. That's interesting, man. And when it comes to other cryptids besides Bigfoot, I mean, of course, Bigfoot, when it is thought to be a flesh and blood creature and that again, when a person has an encounter, it could kind of get to their, the category they want to put it in, they could maybe identify a smell that would fit there, like a dank musk for Bigfoot if they think it's a real thing. But when it comes to other cryptids, do we get that same dank musk smell reported that would indicate it's something physical?
1: Sometimes. I mean, on on hairy hominids of all sorts, or hairy humanoids is probably a more accurate term, of all sorts, you do run into that. So supposed tales of goat men, supposed tales of dog men, You'll find that. But you'll also find, you know, in equal parts, this sulfur odor rearing its head. With stuff like water cryptids, like the Loch Ness Monster or, you know, Champ from Lake Champlain, you tend to find more animalistic smells and like the fishy, uh, reptilian sort of odor. So it's interesting because the farther away you get from phenomena that could be explained in a materialistic, flesh and blood sort of way, the more this sulfurous odor sort of creeps into the picture. You know, a lot of people will hear that, and I don't necessarily think they're wrong. It's not the path that I go down in the book, but it's, I don't necessarily think they're wrong. That implies some sort of demonic activity. Where I come from is I'm not entirely sure that we know enough about what demonic activity really is to even say, you know, oh, it's demonic. Well, okay, that's great. What does that mean? You know, no, it's a loaded term. <laughs> Yeah, it is. But uh, you know, it's interesting. There, there definitely seems to be that the farther you stray from possible, you know, scientific explanations and a biological sense for a lot of these entities, the more you do encounter odors that you wouldn't normally associate with these things. For example, the chupacabra flap in Puerto Rico. A lot of times, people say that the chupacabra not only smells like sulfur, but can also smell like paint thinner, which isn't something you'd ever <laughs> expect an animal to smell like. So yeah, the farther away you get from rational explanation, the more these really odd outlier or um, odd non-organic smells creep into the picture.
0: Yeah, Chupacabra is a weird one. I don't even think I know exactly what a Chupacabra is supposed to look like, let alone smell like, because (laughs) the descriptions seem to range from a dog-like creature to something more reptilian or even insect-looking with spikes all over it. It seems like a hard one to pin down.
1: Yeah, it's kind of interesting. You know, the Chupacabra in its current incarnation didn't really i mean so there was vampiric lore in Puerto Rico but it didn't really like completely congeal in the way that we think of the chupacabra until like the 90s in Puerto Rico and it was originally depicted as basically like a little kangaroo-legged gray alien with spikes along its back yeah. and it would you know it would run around exsanguinating livestock you know specifically goats chupacabras the sucker of goats is what it comes from but unfortunately, sometime, suppose around like 2003, 2004, someone shot a canine with mange in Texas yep. and saw some pronounced canine teeth on it and said, oh, it must be, you know, this must be the chupacabra. So now people will refer to chupacabras as being these sort of dog-like creatures that are found in the Southwest. It's interesting, you know, that a lot of these things that are being shot in the Southwest and being claimed to be chupacabras don't quite line up to coyote or or, you know, a domestic dog or coyote domestic dog hybrid morphology. It's interesting to note that. But in terms of its connection to the Puerto Rican phenomena, yeah, in name only. But, you know, let's go ahead and pursue this a little bit. These Texas blue dogs, it's interesting. Some people have claimed that perhaps there is some sort of mutational factor impacting these dogs on an embryonic stage, and they're actually citing sulfur dioxide emissions from coal plants in South Texas. Again, sort of a tangential sulfur connection there. Even though the blue dogs don't smell, there's still that sulfur connection that you can look for if you look hard enough.
0: Mm. Yeah, man. And I also love this other slice of sightings that I guess could be called phantom animals or these big black cats and big black dogs. Then you see at the crossroads, which is a real provocative subject to me, They say if you perform certain rituals at the crossroads, you know, you go there the first night to do the thing, you come back the second night, and it's common to see some phantom animals lurking around, and if that doesn't scare you out of coming back the third night, then... You meet the man himself and you can make some type of deal to be able to play guitar or, you know, whatever you need. <laughs> yep, yep. But again, that sulfur smell comes up in some of these cases, which helps to indicate it's not some type of hallucination, that there's something happening in these instances.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's the other thing that I found really compelling is, you know, I'm definitely one of these people who thinks that there is some sort of objective reality to hallucinations, quote unquote hallucinations that are seen in altered states. I think sometimes, I think it's like dreams, you know, I think that sometimes you have big dreams and little dreams and your little dreams are like, you know, I was walking down the street and a dog came up to me and shook my hand, you know, and put a cream pie on my head, you know, just silly (laughs) nonsensical dreams. I think sometimes there are big dreams that are profound, that say something that have some sort of, that that sort of, you know, bump up against reality a little bit.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: And similarly, I think, you know, you have little hallucinations and big hallucinations. I think sometimes some of the things that people see in altered states are, you know, completely inconsequential, you know, silliness and they're byproducts of the brain. But sometimes I think there's legitimate entity encounter in those states. What's interesting to me is that hallucinated smells are not often, if ever, encountered under the influence of psychedelics, for example. Yeah. You do find it as, you know, as as a neurological disorder, but you don't find it as something that is produced as what we would you know, assume a, a, an hallucination to be. So it implies that as weird as these things get, and as far out as I would like to suggest the reality of these things are, there is an objective component to what they are.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, man. And uh, you mentioned water monsters a little bit earlier, and something that I thought was weird in the book is people refer to them as smelling like a snake, which I don't even think is a smell I could identify either.
1: You know, it's interesting, have you ever been to like a pet store that specializes, a herpetological pet store that specializes in, in, in reptiles? I'm sure I have at some point, but not really that I recall. Yeah, well, if you want to find out what a snake smells like, just next time you see a reptile pet shop, like just go in there and you will not forget it, because it's a nasty smell. <laughs> Again, it's one of those things when you look at the way that people try to describe it, they tend to compare it to other things that it doesn't really quite smell like people will say you know it's skunky they'll say it's you know musky or they'll say it's musty which are you know terms that are really problematic in a completely different way because you normally associate must with dust and musk with animals but at the same time you know you have male animals who are in must who are releasing musk so it's <laughs> it's a co- co- complex thing but whenever people try to explain that you know, like something like the smell of reptiles in the case of these uh, these water monsters like champ from lake champlain They really do tend to grasp at straws, which makes the whole thing, you know, more difficult to parse out exactly what they mean. So, you know, a lot of this is best guess.
0: Yeah, and it's kind of funny. It reminds me of a Lewis Black comedy bit where he talks about marketing in foods. And he's like, he talks about the word tangy. And he's like, they use this word tangy and it doesn't mean anything. It's it's kind of a bullshit thing that marketers made up (laughs) and kind of terms like musty. Weird smells have kind of that same yeah, quality. Yeah. It's like there's common words we use for them. But when we get down to it, it's like, well, those are kind of odd
1: descriptors. Yeah. And it's, it's I mean, sometimes they're accurate. But what they could possibly mean is it's a really wide margin. Yeah. So
0: and also, obviously, you have a lot of great encounters with uh, cryptids peppered throughout the book. Is there a particular cryptid story that you like that you could
1: tell us about? Oh, man. Um, well, you know, I so the the primary part of this book is dedicated to spirits, which I say spirits because, you know, I wanted to lump demonology and, you know, supposedly encounters with Satan stuff in there, too. UFOs and Sasquatch. But, you know, there's an entire last chapter that's just sort of the catch-all. And I think one of my favorite cryptid encounters from that would have to be... Uh, some of these really, really strange cryptids that people see, like flying cryptids. Yeah. You know, uh, it's it's something that, you know, it's it's easy to write off Sasquatch as perhaps you know some sort of relict hominid, or it's it's easy to you know s- supposedly say that maybe you know Nessie is a plesiosaur or something. But uh, you know, it's it's interesting to see these these flying things and these sort of flying creatures. One of the interesting ones that I really always enjoyed hearing about was the Van Meter Visitor, which was supposedly this gargoyle that descended upon this Iowa town in 1903. And basically, for a couple of days, I think it was just people were seeing this thing and there was the town doctor like shot at it with a shotgun. And there were I think there were even, you know, two of these things that were running around town. and Everybody. Claim that it just—it smelled awful. It smelled putrid. It smelled uh, overpowering. Of course, frustrating for somebody like me. They don't exactly say what that means because that could mean a lot of things. Yeah. But it's one of those weird stories that really doesn't seem to have a resolution. I mean, according to local lore, they ran these things down an old mine shaft. But it's one of those things that I like because it doesn't fit into anybody's box. You know, there are people who come along and say, "Oh, that's—I'll take that, but I'll put that on my alien box." But no, it doesn't. Sorry. Yeah. It's, that's not. <laughs> it doesn't fit there. You know, oh, I'll put that in my cryptid box. Nope, doesn't fit there. Nothing in the fossil record like that. I'm with you, man. Yeah, <laughs> I love stuff like that. The things that continue to stump people, I, I love.
0: Mm-hmm. Flying creatures are great because they are kind of the most epic and in a weird way, they almost seem, I mean, obviously there's not much of a fossil record, but they almost seem more possible because they could get away quickly. They could hide maybe uh, easier, but there is one in the book that you talk about that I loved. It's a sighting in uh, a Chilean copper mine. Again, mine associated with a flying creature, but uh, seen by multiple people, With which of course I always like. And when we're talking about mines, we're also talking about deep passages into the earth, which is another sweet spot for me. But they had this thing that flew over their heads, and it was described as having wings with brownish feathers, long snake-like body with bright scales, and the head of a lobster... And uh, it smelled like burnt (laughs) arsenic, which, you know, good job identifying burnt arsenic.
1: Yeah, exactly. Let me try to remember what that smells like, right? Yeah, I love that. That's another one one that I love because it is one of those things. The ufologists will come along and grab those and try to throw it into the UFO basket. But I think, you know, if if it was a spaceship, I think people would have been more inclined. I mean, this was like 1868. So the ideas of Jules Verne and, you know, dirigibles and things like that. They're kind of in the consciousness, and to say that like it had the head of a lobster, it's just it's wonderfully. And like apparently, it was a lobster-headed flying snake with thick hair and these brownish feathers, and it was a Chilean copper mine that it appeared out in front of, and people thought it was the devil. <laughs> Supposedly, some people had remembered that you know in years past it had appeared again, but you know I just have no idea what to make of that. No idea what to make of that.
0: Yeah, it almost sounds like they drilled too deep and unleashed some kind of Lovecraftian horror. Yeah,
1: the elves, del- the, the, the dwarves, rather, uh, delved too deep. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
0: man. Uh, I just love that one. And, uh, you know, there's other flying dragon-like sightings in the book, too. I always thought dragon stories were interesting because they're so cross-cultural and they could have possibly been survivors of the dinosaur era i mean as out there as that is we do have a history of an era that was dominated by large reptiles but what are your thoughts on uh, the category of dragons i mean do these sightings carry on today or do they seem to be like hundreds of years old in most cases
1: you know, as much as I want to endorse the idea of possible, you know, dragon sightings, I do kind of love the idea of dragons being an amalgamation of what we feared as primates. You know, we feared mm. we feared hawks and we feared uh, lizards. So we sort of, in our primitive ape brains, we mashed those together into dragons, you know, these t- <laughs> taloned flying beasts as like the ultimate terror. But yeah, I mean, if you look hard enough, people are still seeing things like dragons from time to time. I think Lon Strickler over at uh, Phantoms and Monsters had something just as recently as maybe six, seven months ago, where somebody, and I think it was New Jersey or some somewhere in the Northeast, supposedly saw like this dragon flying through the clouds. <laughs> one of my one of my favorite stories from the book, because of sort of the direction that it goes in, is supposedly in 1895. Now, of course, these old newspapers you have to sort of take with a grain of salt, but. Supposedly in 1895, a newspaper around San Francisco mentioned that these children had been frightened by this dragon that was dwelling in an abandoned mine. And if you if you look at what the kids described, they said that they smelled this musky odor coming off the dragon and they said that they were gathering poppies. So I kind of wonder if this isn't a thinly veiled. Maybe Mm. this was maybe this was some sort of code for a a drug pickup or something. (laughs) San Francisco poppies, musky odor. (laughs) Yeah. But. You know, you do find these stories and it's like anything that I talk about. I'm sure that 90% of, of the stories in this book are garbage. But if there's even, you know, if there's even 1% of the stories that I have in this book that have some sort of real truth to it, then that's that's a huge deal. Yeah. So, you know, you have to sort of, you have to get out your big interesting if true basket and carry it around with you and chuck stuff in there as you go.
0: <laughs> yeah. I mean, you might not see lobster headed flying serpents all the time, but you only need one. <laughs>
1: Flying spaghetti monsters, I guess.
0: (laughs) Amen. So to dig deeper into the aliens and UFO category, you do say that a lot of thought has clearly gone into spirit smells, but a lot of science has gone into the subject in the UFO category. Can you elaborate on that?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, I love ghost hunters. I know some ghost hunters, and I think that they have some of the best, they have the most easily replicable job in terms of, you know, the easiest Wall to climb in terms of proving something because a lot of people are open to those ideas. Yeah. but at the same time, they have a tendency to take things, and I think sometimes even worse than ufologists, which is kind of a thing that I wouldn't think I'd say. But I think yeah. even worse than uf- ufologists, they have a tendency to half grasp a scientific concept and run with it. So <laughs> I mentioned neurological, you know, experiences. There is a neurological condition called phantosmia, which is the smelling of phantom smells often associated with some sort of uh, you know brain disorder. And it's usually the harbinger of something worse uh, in terms of someone's health coming down the pike. But you know a lot of ghost researchers sort of latched onto that and said, oh, phantasmia. So whenever you smell a spirit, it's phantasmia. No, no, no. <laughs> phantasmia is smelled by one person. If you have five people in a room smelling a smell that you can't identify, that's not phantasmia. I don't know what it is. It maybe is some sort of shared hallucination. It may be a spirit, whatever, but it's not phantasmia. But, you know, ufology, on the other hand, has had an interest in UFO smells for some time. There were some articles both in the uh, early MUFON journals and in the Flying Saucer Review publication that really did try their best to break apart exactly what it could mean. Again, this is, you know, a couple of articles that were dedicated to this. I think that somebody should have written this book that I wrote a long time ago because Mm -hmm. it seems like a good starting point. But you did find some people talking about it. But the best work that I... Have personally found on the subject is something of more in more recent years. It was an essay that I believe was completed in 2000 by a ufologist by the name of Antonio F. Rulan. And a lot of what he did was sort of foundational to this work. And he determined that a lot of the symptoms, he was the, one of the first people to really categorize a lot of the symptoms that people had in terms of the way that the smell would interact with them watering eyes, feeling ill, feeling nauseous, these sort of things. And he came to the conclusion that in at least some of the cases that sulfur compounds were indeed at play as well, which, you know, runs counter to a lot of old guard ufology. You know, a lot of old guard ufology felt that there were more, you know, uh, machine-based smells, like the smell of burning hydrocarbons, again, the smell of ozone. John Keel was one of the few people who really said, you know, "It it smells like sulfur. But yeah, so I, I have to take my hat off to Antonio on that because it was one of those things where I'm like, this is, <laughs> this has got to be you know, referenced with due reverence in the book because of the great work that he put forward.
0: Yeah, and the alien thing is just so interesting because last time we talked about aliens possibly being a modern technological skin on the long history of fairy-like encounters. But this book kind of does look at aliens more from the standard ET hypothesis perspective, uh, I guess I'd ask you if the study of smells, did it objectively move the needle for you at all in this question? Or are you still right there in the
1: middle? I mean, yeah, yeah, it did. Anybody that listens to me, you know, on any of my shows knows that I'm still pretty sour on the ETH. But the extraterrestrial hypothesis is treated much more kindly in this book than it was in in A Trojan Feast. And honestly, like some, some of this stuff kind of does... You know, some of the stuff that kind of does sort of suggest uh, more of an extraterrestrial solution, even though I still don't think that's the case, it's opened me up to it. For example, one of the compelling things to me is that meteorites and moon dust are often compared to gunpowder smells. Some astronauts said that, you know, whenever they would return to the lander, that the moon dust on their shoes smelled just like someone had fired a carbine in the capsule. And that again lines up with some of these tales of you know sulfur dioxide, which we, you know we haven't really talked about too much, but is is that sort of firework gunpowder smell that you do find with some UFO cases. Mm-hmm. You can also look at the fact that you know if we had not become carbon-based life forms in terms of you know abundant materials, it's highly likely that we could have become sulfur-based life forms. What sort of implications would that have for odor <laughs> in terms of extraterrestrials from other star systems? So it's it, it's made me more sympathetic to it still doesn't mean i'm on board uh you know mm-hmm. i'm 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 still very much of a spirit world fairy kind of guy i think when if you were to hold my feet to the fire but it did definitely make it warm me up a little bit to that
0: i'm right there with you man it's been a while since anything has pulled me back towards looking at these encounters with beings as actually aliens from another galaxy but the data in the book did a little bit because when people say aliens smell like ozone or other types of chemicals it's got to make you wonder Is this some odor related to the crafts they're using? Usually UFOs are described as some kind of electrogravitic technology. Maybe that odor is a byproduct of it, or maybe popping in and out of dimensions or portals, if they're using that for travel,
1: puts off that smell. It's a curious thing. Yeah, it's, it's one of those sort of things where if you look at these sort of possibilities that are opened up, it's impossible to really sort of catalog and go down each of those roads. I tried my best to say, okay, well, conventional aircraft, unconventional aircraft, you know, natural phenomena. You know, I think that there's something to be said that a lot of earth lights happen around earthquakes and people say that a lot of earthquakes release, you know, sulfurous volcanic gases. And then, you know, the extraterrestrial hypothesis, maybe it's that, but you know, you can there's only so many hours in the day, you can only devote so much time to each of those different possibilities and then you know i mean who knows maybe the black budget world has discovered a way to run you know unconventional aircraft on rotten eggs and (laughs) they just release a stream of fart across the sky as a chemtrail maybe that's maybe that's something you know just stuff that we can't even comprehend could be the explanation for this so it makes it a little bit more frustrating than i thought it would be to begin with right it's always more maybes but
0: in terms of stories, you have one that I thought was really interesting. It took place on November 11th, 1987. So in my lifetime, I always like the ones that don't have to go back, you know, hundreds of years. But this guy, Ed Walters in Gulf Breeze, Florida, I guess he saw a UFO and was trying to get closer to it, and he was stopped by a beam that he said smelled like cinnamon mixed with ammonia. That's a weird one.
1: It is. It's, <laughs> it's interesting because if you look at... So the Ed Walters case is a pretty famous case. It's sullied a little bit because apparently someone who moved into Walter's home later found a model of a UFO that looked suspiciously like some that were seen in some photographs that Walters uh, had taken. But if you look at that description, cinnamon and ammonia, the cinnamon sort of lines up with some of the things that Whitley Strieber said. But also, you know, that the cinnamon and ammonia both have this Interesting quality that I noticed with a lot of odors, which is they are both strong stimulants of the trigeminal nerve. So if you look at sort of the, the odors in a lot of these paranormal phenomena, it really does sort of a line falls down the middle where it's it's either sulfur odors and non-sulfur odors. And it was interesting, if you look at the non-sulfur odors, a lot of them seem to be strong stimulants of the trigeminal nerve. Now, if anybody doesn't know what that is, you know, go to your kitchen, open up your jar of vinegar and take a big whiff and tell me what you feel. Well, that's your trigeminal nerve. It's what makes, you know, spicy food spicy and cold food cold. It's actually a, one of the largest nerves in the face. It actually controls a lot of facial movement. So I thought that, that was sort of an interesting avenue to sort of look into is, or what's some what are some implications of the fact that some of these odors tend to be strong stimulants of the trigeminal nerve? And it seems to me that there perhaps could be some sort of stimulating quality that might be essential to the experience i don't know how coy i should be about <laughs> about mm-hmm. about my conclusions but um i think that that's a not inconsequential detail
0: yeah i was gonna get to that i do love that part that the sense that trigger that nerve in our nose are the same ones associated with these strange phenomena. i mean that can't be an accident
1: i yeah i don't think so <laughs> you know um <laughs> again like like the things i i find it it's always really compelling to me whenever, I mean, this is my second book, but whenever I'm writing, the most compelling things always just fall into my lap. You know, one of the most compelling things I think about the last book was this idea that a lot of these entity foods corresponded to this sattvic diet, this diet that was favored by, you know, Hindu mystics and holy men. Yeah. And this whole trigeminal nerve angle was, again, one of those things that just completely fell into my lap. And I said, oh, that's an, that's an interesting connection. And yeah, I, I think that it's even more interesting when you view how those particular odors, you know, fall on a spectrum with what uh, certain sulfur odors, specifically hydrogen sulfide, you know, can do in terms of. Uh, well, you, if you want to get into that, we can. That's that's fine.
0: <laughs> well, absolutely, it is something we sort of all know but overlook this connection between altered states and smell because we've seen movies where an unconscious person is woken up with smelling salts, and there are also smells that can knock a person out and it's interesting that certain odors can almost act as an on and off switch for waking consciousness and maybe there's a clue there because the connection between psychedelics and these contact experiences really resonates with me and this could just be a natural parallel maybe instead of eating mushrooms certain smells can be released that facilitate these weird contact experiences
1: yeah. I mean, it's, it's it's really interesting because smell is, again, it's also a good metaphor for the paranormal. You know, it's, it surrounds us, but we can't always see it, but we can sometimes detect it and it influences us even if we don't realize it. But specifically in terms of what we're talking about here. Yeah. You talked about smelling salts. All these trigeminal stimulants are actually stimulants in, in that capacity. The reason that smelling salts work is because they are strong trigeminal stimulants. So they sort of end up shocking you awake. They're sort of like an emergency button that your body is able to press whenever they're hit with it. And it's interesting if you compare that to sulfur smells, the most common of which is hydrogen sulfide. And uh, about, well, seven years ago, now that it's 2017 – Some researchers were actually able to induce suspended animation in mice by using carefully monitored amounts of hydrogen sulfide. Hydrogen sulfide, which again is a poisonous gas, so don't go home and do this, don't try this at home kids, (laughs) but uh, they were actually able to induce suspended animation in these mice. They basically rendered them cold-blooded. If I recall correctly, they uh, actually dropped their breathing to 10 breaths per minute from, you know, 120 breaths per minute as mice. And they uh, brought their uh, body temperature down all the way to 51.8 degrees Fahrenheit. So, I mean, basically, so suspended animation, by definition, would be an altered state of consciousness. This isn't to say that hydrogen sulfide is, you know, a hallucinogen. It's not, which is the reason, again, don't try this at home, kids. (laughs) But if you are in that state it would by definition be an altered state of consciousness. So what my suggestion is, is that perhaps this is sort of a way of setting the stage for something else to come in and do its thing. And then when it it, it wants to pull you out of that, you get hit with the trigeminal stimulant and it, you know, brings you out of that facilitates a quick rapid return to your normal state of of wakefulness.
0: Yeah. I think you're really onto something there. I loved that uh, suspended animation portion because that data is just so interesting. Clearly, there's some relationship that we just don't understand
1: yet. Oh, a- a- absolutely! What's fascinating to me is that it's something that you know is literally used as a as a chemical warfare agent. If if you're really careful with it, could you know possibly be the secret to unlocking you know trips to the stars. Mm-hmm. You know, it's amazing that something that volatile can be that useful at the same time.
0: I love it, man. So. Again, kind of trying to wrap this thing together, I mentioned this in the intro, but it does seem like uh, focusing on these little details does give us clues into the big picture. We talked about a lot of the insights in both areas you know over the course of these two shows we've done. But are there any other ways in which you think about these phenomenon differently after writing these two books that you have than rather than the way you thought of them before?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I I was always aware that there was a level of theater and manipulation involved. You know, the idea that we are allowed to see these things in a lot of these cases, especially in, you know, the uh, especially in the UFO phenomena and the ghost phenomena. And I think that's just really been strengthened. But even more so to the point that I think that we're allowed to see it and things are specifically made to resonate with us because I think we are inextricably a part of these things. We are connected to this, these particular phenomena in a way that I think is um, that, that shares the burden of the way that we see it. And what I mean by that is I think that to quote my good friend, Greg Bishop, I think we bring things to the dance when we see these things. I think we see something that is so alien in the dictionary sense of the word in terms of being foreign to us, that we try our best to understand it and um, we draw upon whatever clues that we can to sort of fill in the missing blanks, be they uh, pop culture, be they culture of our, you know, of our, our own ethnicity, uh, be they, um, you know, be they something from perhaps from the collective unconscious, whatever is happening is we are meeting this thing halfway. And that has been really strengthened by by what I've been seeing over the past couple of years. Mm, great point. Right on, man. Well, fascinating
0: stuff as always. Before we go, do tell the people about anything else you got going on or where they can keep up with you in this mad, mad world.
1: Well, uh, you can um, hop on uh, to joshuacutchin.com. I keep a list of every interview I've ever done there. Um, you also I can find links there to both books, uh, A Trojan Feast and The Brimstone Deceit. Um, if you don't want to navigate my website, you can just hop on over to Amazon or Barnes & Noble. It's available. Uh both books are available in uh paperback and Kindle formats. A Trojan Feast is actually available available on hardcover as well. Um and uh you can catch me on more or less a weekly basis at uh the Where Did the Road Go podcast, which is where did the dot com. And uh I'm on there frequently with uh Red Pill Junkie and Micah, Hugh- and Micah Hughes Mike Hughes <laughs> and uh Sarai Azcath doing a, a bunch of round tables and uh I get a chance to uh to rattle on there. So um uh it and i'd like to thank you greg for having me on here it's it's always um there are interviews that i do where i'm like okay i'm gonna do this and i'm just gonna find my way through it and then there are interviews that i actually get excited about <laughs> and this is this is one of those so thank you for having me back i really appreciate it
0: awesome man you are too kind it is my pleasure you're the man keep doing what you do and take care out there thanks so much greg take care there we go higher side chatters joshua Cutchin, the sensation sensation a lot of people have been asking me to go back to paranormal and cryptozoology, and I do love that stuff, but it's hard to find new angles and stories that most enthusiasts haven't heard before. But Josh, J.C. Johnson, Lyle Blackburn, Linda Godfrey, those are some great episodes, but it is just tough. Mike Clellan and the owl angle was good recently, and Josh's food-based and smell-based approaches are also interesting. Smell does get a bit more vague and broad, but there were some aspects that really clicked for me. The smell of decay and decomposition in certain situations, I guess that might be sort of expected, but it also kind of speaks to the mechanism behind those accounts. Maybe the clues around odor and the abduction experience do actually suggest that it's its own phenomenon. Personally, I've started to think of those things more as occult or magic-based. But I still like to come back to the traditional angle once in a while, because I wouldn't ever try to be so arrogant as to say I have figured it out. I just lean towards long-standing, maybe Earth-based encounters told through different cultural lenses. Either way, Josh is a great guy who clearly works hard and does like to bring new things to the table, rather than the way some people can phone it in and just churn out a bunch of paranormal books. His are both really in-depth. And the suspended animation stuff that we ended the first hour with is really fascinating, isn't it? Of course, smells and their connection to altered states. Also got to get a kick out of that. Kind of weird, because obviously we know we can ingest something or smoke something and reach an altered state. But just an odor. I mean, it's clear when you think about it, but definitely something I often forget. Again, all these sorts of sightings from goat suckers to lobster-headed angels... I think altered states are a big part of these things. Maybe the endogenous DMT dumps aspect is in play. I hear these things, and I do take people at their word, but critics do say, well, where's the physical evidence? Where's the fossil record for Bigfoot? And you're just not going to get anywhere like that. It's not going to fit in the materialist box, but that doesn't make it any less valid. So, interesting stuff. If you're wanting a little more to satisfy your hunger for Strange, in the second hour we talked about... A lot of things you might not have expected, but Terrence McKenna and the mysterious octopi, the foul and detailed description of the Bigfoot odor, stillborn lambs, the saga of the mass gasser of Mattoon, MIB and black-eyed children encounters and their accompanying odors, star jelly, the caulking of the firmament, alchemy and its place in the discussion and in Josh's book, the olfactory philosophy of Plato and Aristotle. Odors described in the Lesser Key of Solomon, smells and magical ritual, more rules of entity engagement, and a whole lot more. So plenty of stuff to keep a person entertained. Five bucks a month gets you five shows a month, yada yada. Sign up for you, don't sign up for me. Plus you get that lifetime forum access now. Free downloads to all the higher side music. People ask me all the time where they can buy the music, and I say, just sign up and it's yours, or chop the songs off the end of any show and tell me to go fuck myself. TheHigherSideChatsPlus.com. How's that for a sales pitch? <laughs> Big thanks again to Josh, and really all the February guests, Shaman Janeer, Jay Dyer, Austin Kopic, and Ryan Zimmerman. Pretty diverse spread of topics with a definite emphasis on magic, and a lot of return guests too. Four out of five. I wonder how people feel about that. Because when I hear a guest returning to a podcast that I've heard them on, I typically like it more. I feel like there's more camaraderie and that kind of thing. But I also like discovering new people and getting into new people's heads. So it goes both ways. Looking at March, I think it's all new guests. Some well-known, some completely unknown, and some threads I've never really heard before that I just can't get out of my head now. So psyched to get them out. If I'm being honest, two are probably just all right. One is really good if you can get past the guest's obsession with returning to a particular subject that I never really ask about. And two are just fucking phenomenal, guys. Two of them, I think, are instant classics to me. So, remember what I said here, and maybe you can decode what I'm saying by the end of next month. Might as well get plus now, so you're locked and loaded. Anyway, I've done my part Your move, smelly spirits, aromatic aliens, and odorific entities. Your fucking move. Woke
2: up this morning with light in my eyes And then realized it was dark outside It was light coming down from the sky I don't know Who or why Must be those strangers That come Every night Whose saucer Shaped light Put people up tight, Leave blue-green Footprints that Glow in the dark I hope they get home alright Hey Mr. Spaceman Won't you please take me along I won't do anything wrong Hey Mr. Spaceman Won't you please The high side. Woke up this morning. I was feeling quite weird. I had flies in my beer. My toothpaste was smeared. I opened my window. Uh ha